The world is very complicated out there. Sure. <laughs> and our industry gets more complicated. If you look at where we were 25 years ago when I started versus today, my goodness, you know, alternatives and hedge funds and, right. you know, absolute return strategies and derivatives and overlays, it's, it's much different than it is today. You're about to hear my conversation with Barry McNerney. We discuss the optimistic case for China, what trends in the U.S. are likely to make their way north of the border, how McKenzie's done in 2019 and what to expect from McKenzie in 2020, and recommendations on everything from books, movies, and his favorite charities. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to Bites and Insights, the podcast designed to give you insights on how our investors manage client money. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be here with Barry McInerney. Barry is the president and CEO of McKenzie Investments. He joined back in July of 2016. Barry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here, Matt. I look forward to a wide-ranging conversation. Let's get started with how you became interested in the business of investment management. Well, it was a long time ago, but I think uh, actually started university. Because, um, I'm an actuary, so I studied mathematics undergrad, but I always wanted to learn more about investments. So I went on to, uh, uh, to um, graduate degree, MBA at Rotman, and focused a lot on investments. Mm-hmm. And that really got me going to say, this is, I like this. Um, so uh, as any dutiful actuarial um, wannabe, when I joined Mercer, I uh, went through the actuarial track, became an actuary. And started my career as a pension actuary, but um, I was always uh, interested on the asset side of the balance sheet because as actuaries, you're focused more on the liability side of the balance sheet. And um, I was probably lucky in that investment consulting was a fairly new industry in Canada in the uh, early 90s. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mercer uh, started to have a nascent uh, operation in that area. So uh, I quickly grabbed hold of that and said, you know what, I'd, I'd like to start to focus on both sides of the balance sheet, assets and liabilities, um, and study for my CFA to speed up my knowledge of investments. I thought sure. that was a good idea and became a CFA in the early 90s. And actually, ultimately, uh, 25 years ago, I transferred solely over to the investment side mm-hmm. at Mercer. And um, so from there, it's been a love affair for 25 years and been involved in either consulting or asset management for 25 years for a variety of companies. And um, I I think I always tell everyone about asset management or investments, it's a uh, it's a lifelong journey. I feel like sure. after 25 years, I'm barely mid-career. Uh, I think Warren Buffett would tell you that also at age 88. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I just love it. I think it's a great thing. It's global. It's uh, ever-changing every day. Um, you're um, ultimately, um, you know, I, I feel an altruistic a- aspect to investments, asset management. That you're helping investors meet their financial objectives and retirement security. So it has a nice feel to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it just stuck with me and, and it's been, um, yeah, been at it for about 25 years now. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So given that uh, breadth of experience at Mercer mm-hmm. um, and uh, working closely with investors at various uh, other organizations, have you noticed any shared characteristics behind some of the best investors in the world? Oh, and I've been very fortunate to either uh, on the consulting side to obviously see a lot of like dozens right. and hundreds of firms around the world in terms of what was a was good or worked or didn't work. Mm-hmm. And then heading up asset management companies for about 15 years now, um, obviously worked alongside some very talented individuals. You know, it's um, I think it's I think it's difficult to characterize in, you know, one or two common traits. Yeah. Uh you know, it takes a certain, uh, obviously it takes a certain intellect, uh, curiosity, it takes a certain temperament. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you have to, you have to have a process that you believe in, uh, and focus on that process and then, um, develop a portfolio adhering to that process to make sure it's repetitive and hopefully, uh, it's successful. And, um, you have to stick to it and to be very long-term focus. And even though the markets is one of the few jobs in the world uh, if you think about it, that you can measure your performance like every second, right? <laughs> sure. Like, yeah. At least every day, you know how you did, good, bad, mm-hmm. or ugly. And so that that can wear on you as, as an investor. Um, but successful ones, I think, have the temperament that they're long-term focused. They have strong convictions in what they're doing. They think what their their process works and it's right. Mm-hmm. have to be adaptive at times. That's the one thing I've sure. noticed with investors over time, that you, you do have a tried-and-true formula that's been working. 
and you don't want to veer from that formula that's worked in the past because uh, past performance is no indication of future performance. So the only indication you have that things might work out in the future is how you did in the past right. in that did your application of your approach work in the past. But uh, it's a very a dynamic environment out there. You have to be adaptive as well in terms of even within your, the constraints of your particular process or formula, you have to also change over time. So I don't know if that makes sense or not, but I, I don't, I don't, I've seen a lot of successful investors uh, in other companies and ones I've overseen, and I don't think it comes down to one, th- one or two things, but I do say a common thread would be the appropriate temperament to be able to right. focus every day on what you're doing in your craft um, and this could be a 20, 30, 40, 50 year career, by the way, as sure. this investments. And sometimes you get burned out in certain careers, industries after 10 years. Mm-hmm. This can be 30, 40, 50 years. So you're going to have to be able to take the short termisms of ups and downs with a, a calm demeanor to enable you to, to kind of uh, cut through that noise and be successful in the long term. If that makes sense. But it does. It's a great, great question. Yeah. That's great. Um, you obviously you run uh, an investment management organization uh, in McKenzie. Yeah, uh, it's hard to find great investment talent. It is, a, as yeah. you just laid out. Yeah, how do you ensure that McKenzie is a place that both attracts and retains some of the best investment talent in the world? And uh, that's 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 job one because we're an asset management company, and so right. we manage money. <laughs> we have to do that successfully for our clients, um, and so. Um, you know, we want to be the employer choice. Uh, there's a lot of competitors out there. It's an interesting industry, asset management. It's one of the most, um, I don't want to use the word fragment as a negative term, but it's, it's a very diffuse fragmented industry. There's, you know, some industries have three or four players that dominate globally. Sure. And then, you know, you know, we have, you know, BlackRock, which is a formal competitor. They're mm-hmm. at 7 trillion Vanguard. But other, you know, there's, there's really, there's thousands of managers. Mm-hmm. So um, the war on talent is there. And you've got a lot of preferences of uh, good portfolio managers in terms of what they're looking for. And so we like to think McKenzie's a great place to work at, which I think, I think it is. I've been here leading it for over three and a half years, almost three and a half years now, and I've led other organizations. It's a great culture. We have a great culture here. And I believe, and I think my leadership team believes, that portfolio managers can come to McKenzie and uh, do the best work. And we don't, so, but w- what we do to ensure attract and retention of talent is first of all, we do, uh, we do have a track record that we can point to to say, listen, you come here and we will give you what you need to succeed. Um, we do it in a boutique approach. Now that's different. Uh, there's uh, different models out there. It's a fully integrated asset management company and I've, I've led different types. I've led that. Mm-hmm. I've led hybrids. Uh, there's also t- um, firms such as McKenzie, we subscribe to boutique model. Smaller teams working, rubbing shoulders every day, working mm-hmm. on one particular aspect of capital markets either an asset class or a style or process, fundamental quant, equities, fixed income, emerging markets, Canadian, et cetera. <clears throat> and um, that's something that, first of all, that seems to be attracted to a portfolio manager. Um, I think the nature of humans is that we work well in smaller teams. I think they, they get a team, a, a, a group think, well, group thinking can be good and bad, but I think diverse thinking is important in terms of better outcomes. Sure. So you need to have a certain a number of people in a team. But I think the fact that we have a boutique offering for portfolio managers come in and they work in a smaller team, focusing on one asset class or one strategy to hone their craft is attractive. So pr- produce the environment where they can thrive and do well. Um, do the research they need, give them the tools they need, give them the environment they need, which we've been doing for years, and I think we can point to success. Right. Yeah. So effectively, give them independence in the boutique model where yes. they're able to hone their craft, That's but right. give them the resources of a larger firm and work collaboratively across the different departments mm-hmm. and allow them to be successful, um, yeah. both from uh, both asset gathering and uh, performance. She just said a very idea, man. I think we right. should. <laughs> like and the other thing, if I if I might add, because you just it just tweaks something, is that um, I think this this refer this relates to your question, but maybe mm-hmm. more broadly as we get into other questions. Uh, but we're um, you know we're a proudly Canadian firm, which uh, I think is important in that uh, we're 52 years old, and you know when Canada turned 150 years old um, in um, 2017, we were identified McKenzie as one of the iconic. Uh, one of the 150 iconic brands of Canada. And we're only asset management company to be identified as such. I thought that was pretty cool, actually. So we're proudly Canadian, but we've always had, well before I arrived, we've always had a very global perspective as a Canadian firm. 
you referenced your 15 years uh, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to turn to some perspectives. Oh, you want me to talk about politics here? No, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right. And who will <laughs> yeah, win yeah. the election? <laughs> I have a few views. Yeah. But, uh, actually, I'm American now as well, so I'm more Canadian, but I'm, I'm a dual citizen. But oh, will you uh, vote? Yeah. Uh, pardon me? Will you vote? In I the... did vote last election. Oh, okay. Yeah, we won't get into that. But anyways, right, but, very good. Yeah, no, I, I vote both. By the way, if you're interested, I can now vote in Canada because uh, uh, when you were a Canadian, uh, when you were living abroad, you weren't allowed to vote in Canadian elections, and then oh. as American, you can vote no matter where you... You always vote in U.S. election no matter where you reside. Okay. They switched that rule this year, so I was able to vote in Canada, and I can vote in U.S. coming up in 2020, yes. Okay. Well, that'd be, that's a, another podcast. That's so. entirely <laughs> another podcast. Um, but sticking with the U.S. Yes, a little bit yeah. in your experience there, uh, I often hear from my clients that uh, the Canadian wealth management business trails the U.S. Uh, five mm-hmm. to ten years. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly in the past, sometimes that's true, sometimes it's not as true. Right. I'd love to get your perspective on three trends that I've seen in the U.S. Okay. Um, and to see if you believe that they will translate north of the border. Um, so the three trends that I'd love to comment on are the rise of passive ETFs specifically, mm-hmm. uh, the rise of the fiduciary advisor, uh, and also the um, ability of head offices to control more investment management of their advisors through the use of model portfolios. Okay. Uh, okay. Let's start with the rise of ETFs. Yeah, because I'm, I'm over 40, so I'll have to give those one at a time because I can't remember all three. Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll segment <laughs> them out. Barely over 40. But, well, maybe over 50, but I forget. <laughs> but anyway, go ahead. Yeah, yeah so the rise of, sorry, the rise of passive ETFs. Right? Yeah, so I'm reading uh, some things, and, and it's probably been the most well-documented trend of the three that we've discussed, Yeah. yeah. Um, where there's reporting now that 50% of the assets are in uh, passive mm-hmm. uh, structures. In Canada, uh, we certainly have seen a, a rise in mm-hmm. passive mm-hmm. Uh, ETFs. ETFs, yes. we're nowhere close to that sort Correct. of market share. Yeah. Do, you th- do you expect Canada to continue down that path and, and achieve parity with the U.S., or are we different? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. And uh, again, we try our best at you know, McKenzie to, to look around the world for trends. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you got to look first and foremost south of the border, because obviously the biggest market. Uh, but you look at other places as well. And then... Um, you know, anticipate those trends coming to Canada. <clears throat> Either they don't come or they come. And if they come, they sometimes manifest themselves differently. So that's kind of the three categories, right? So that's sure. what we try to do, right? And the best we can. I think we just try to stay, you know, stay ahead of the curve and, and, and for on behalf of our clients. So a um, couple of things in ETF. So ETFs have grown very precipitously, uh, expedition, exponentially in the U.S. We know, yes. we know that. And um, um, being in the U.S. for so long... Um, it wasn't actually, I just wanted to comment, it wasn't uh, to the demise of mutual funds. It wasn't cannibalizing mutual funds. It was mostly, man, there was a couple of years where um, uh, the passive really surged in, in, um, in the U.S. But mostly early on uh, in the U.S., it was simply individual securities holdings where investors decide they want to get exposure with a collective vehicle. And ETFs is a very efficient vehicle, yeah. as are mutual funds, right? They're newer ETFs, right? Uh, so anything newer tends to grow faster than something not as new. Right. But it wasn't due to the cannibalization, but they grew very fast. But one aspect of the U.S. ETF market we have to be aware of is that um, you almost it's ETFs in the U.S. are almost synonymous with passive. Because I may get the numbers wrong, but let's call it, it might be 98, 90%, 99% of, of sure. ETFs in the U.S. are passive. And... Um, there's reasons for that. Um, you know, passive overall has, is quite prevalent in the U.S. Now, passive varies by asset class and the efficiencies of asset classes. Mm-hmm. So, again, probably the most efficient asset class in the world is U.S. equities, particularly large cap. Uh, and that's where, by the way, um, in U.S. large cap equities is where they it just tipped over to uh, half, yes. over half passive, yeah. less than half active. But other asset classes are are not as as Lean, tilting towards passive because of more inefficiencies. You know, emerging markets is very inefficient. It's mostly active. <clears throat> but um, um, there's disclosure requirements in the U.S. or in ETFs as well. There's actually starting, there's still debate again. And there's mm-hmm. some, some. I think there's been a couple of pilots now or just, just recently approved where it almost, uh, I think they're called, I don't know, not, 
um, non-transparent ETFs. That's right. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to get too technical. You're probably aware of those. But the the traditional ETF in the U.S. has trans, trans um, disclosure requirements that really make it difficult for active management to be wrapped in an ETF. Simple as that. So uh, is that the only reason why ETFs are predominantly passive in the U.S.? No, but it's a big reason. So switch to Canada. ETFs, we knew were coming to Canada. They've been here a long time, actually, but they came a little later than U.S. as normally happens. And um, and their growth has been very significant now in Canada. So they have a long runway to, you know, for instance, uh, again, numbers a little dated, but that one number to look at is your ratio of um, each, uh, mutual funds ETFs in a country. In in Canada, it's it's, it's ten to one, let's say, you know, sure. term, right, roughly. I think it's a little, but mutual funds ETFs in U.S. is four to one. So in other words, a long runway for ETFs to grow in Canada. Not to demise the mutual funds. It's not Canadaized mutual funds. Uh, it's a different vehicle, different exposures. They work very well together. We're always out there, as you know, Mackenzie. We're you know better together, right? I mean, sure. mutual funds ETFs work very well together as building blocks for portfolios. So we 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 subscribe to that that value proposition. But in, but but it's manifesting itself a little different. The ETF growth in Canada in that we have different disclosure requirements here in Canada, in that uh, portfolio managers don't have to disclose their holdings every day in right. the ETF as they, have, they do in the U.S. And that's always you know, a concern of an asset manager. We, you know, Everyone has their secret sauce, and, and, and at times it's, it's quite proprietary mm-hmm. as to how you're managing money and, and hopefully you know, outperforming the markets from an active perspective. And to disclose that every day um, transparently to the markets may not be the most... Uh, uh, effective way to hold on to your competitive edge. Sure. <laughs> so um, uh, active and smart beta ETFs are growing far faster in Canada than they ever have or will in the U.S. Mm. for that one reason and other reasons. Is passive ETFs in Canada growing? Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and uh, I think that gets to the overall institutionalization of markets. Uh, in my experience in running you know, investment companies around the world, um, I'd say Canada, it's, it's getting holding Canada's institutionalization in terms of any type of investor, be it institutional investors or high net worth, and then cl- starting to get into the retail advisory side where they're starting to put together portfolios looking at risk budgeting and cost budgeting. Sure. And that could have a role where you have active and smart beta and passive combined. So passive is growing in Canada in, a, in the context of a portfolio construction, but not because it's like I'm fed up with active or is cannibalizing mutual funds. But the active and smart beta is growing. It, it's, it's um, I forget the stats, but I think like fixed income ETFs in Canada, I could be wrong, but I think approaching half the flows in the industry are active. Wow. Whereas it's essentially de minimis or zero in the US. So that's just, you know, so coming to Canada, growing fast, lot on the runway, but it's, it's, it's manifesting itself differently in Canada. And right. the biggest difference is the active smart beta uh, growth of ETFs in Canada vis-a-vis uh, south of the border. Great. Yeah. Um, very interesting. So let's uh, transition then to talking about the rise of the professional sure. uh, buyer. So yeah. um, I was reading recently, 68% of advisors that work at a broker dealer rely on a model to some degree. Yeah. yeah. Um, now it's they customize, but there's still the base of it as a model. Uh, I don't think we've seen statistics for Canada, but my assumption, it would be far, far less yeah, than that. It is, yeah. um, do you expect that to translate north of the border or is that something that's uh, unique to the American market? Uh, I think we will. And, and we, and by the way, I've, again, I have a great, great leadership team and, mm-hmm. and they're just as experienced as I am. And some of them like myself have worked in other countries and particularly sure. U S. And so I think our consensus is yes. Um, it will grow in Canada. I don't know if it'll grow to the extent sure. it has in the U.S. And um, you know, my one little di- um, digression. And um, I love both countries dearly. And uh, and I retain. You know, I'm based here in Toronto and work here and live here in Toronto. But I retain a residence in the U.S. So I'm there quite a bit because my children are grown up and I like to see them once in a while and sure. my grandkids. Um, but um, you know, U.S. tends to be a country of more highs and and higher highs and lower lows, right. which is the nature. won't get into all the aspects of politics and everything else. Um, so um, in Canada, will the institutionalization, and I'll, I'll use that term again, will the institutionalization of platforms and mm-hmm. dealers continue to rise in having uh, you know, more, um, more focus on the, on the models and for the advisors to, to adhere more to the models? Yes, we think, we think so. Um, now, you can take it a couple of ways. Uh, the world is very complicated out there. Sure. <laughs> and our industry gets more complicated. If you look at where we were 25 years ago when I started versus today, my goodness, 
you know, alternatives and hedge funds and, right. you know, absolute return strategies and derivatives and overlays. It's, it's much different than it was today. That's, that's, that's a difficult when you're an advisor and we're so pro-advisor. We're so pro-advice at McKinsey because, mm-hmm. you know, obviously studies have shown that if you work with an advisor, you're going to have much larger retirement pools of assets when you, when, when, when you retire. So we're very pro-advice and we're really supporters of advisors. That's a tough job. Um, and again, the other research has shown that the, um, the advice component, what they provide, financial financial planning and estate planning and tax planning, that actually, hate to say it because you know, I love my asset management, but that actually can be more impactful to the sure. growth of a pool of assets than the kind of the alpha and the beta, which actually is meaningful. So it might be also perhaps just a better division of labor where an advisor can free up some time to spend more time on the advice side, the financial right. planning side, which is so impactful, right. particularly as not just the financial markets get more complex, but taxes and estate planning and baby boomers aging. They've got a philanthropic. They have so much um, complexity that to deal with even now going forward than they did last 20 years that the advisor has a lot to do. So perhaps maybe the division of labor might be a little better if mm-hmm. they rely a little more on the models uh, and then folk spend more, free up more time on the advice side. I don't know, but I, I, I think there, I think there's a variety of reasons. That might be one of them. Might be yeah, the fact that sure. you know, uh, we feel it. I mean, obviously, us as you know at McKenzie, we we uh, we try ourselves and, and love getting on platforms and having these dealers use us and use our ETFs and 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 um, mutual funds. I think you would agree. We we see the the level of questioning and and, and uh, analytics and um, uh, research they're doing on us has been. Increasing every year, absolutely. Yeah, yes. yeah. So it's uh, you know, is that is that the trend coming here? I'm not sure if that's the the, the trend, sure. but but it, it, I, I would say yes, it's going to continue. But I would say that we we're Canadians. We we do what we feel is best, and yeah. uh, for a variety of reasons, and probably would never get to the extent of the U.S. But certainly, it's going to increase. Absolutely. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, so the final uh, piece on the the U.S. trends is the rise of the fiduciary advisor. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Obviously, regulation has a lot to do with that, uh, with DOL and, and the U.S. Um, requiring fiduciary uh, advisors uh, in Canada. Our uh, most recent uh, regulation has come down. They're, they stopped short of a fiduciary yeah. standard. Yeah. Um, do you feel that Canada will uh, continue to increase the number of fiduciary advisors? Uh, and also, do you feel that regulation uh, will be necessary in order for that to continue? Well, it's a good, it's a good question because um, you know I, I can't speak for the regulators, but yeah. obviously we all know <clears throat> know them, and and if you were in their shoes, you want to make sure first and foremost that the best interests of Canadian investors are met and, and right and and uh, are protected. So, if they felt that, um, uh, can I give you an example? Maybe I'm yeah, a good example. Sure. So I was in the U.S. when they uh, launched. I think I, I might get the date wrong. In 2008, they. Um, they changed quite significantly the, the pension laws in the U.S. And, um, and, you know, D.C. is quite—401k plans are actually bigger than D.B. in terms of assets in, yes. in, in the U.S. And uh, we all weren't expecting it, but they um, they decided to um, uh, have a, a requirement for default option. So if you have a 401k or D.C. plan in the U.S., people may be familiar with this term, um, you have to put a target date or target risk option on your platform. Right. And that was probably a signal by the regulators and government in the U.S., which actually, you know, typically, as you know, culturally, the U.S. tends to let the natural forces of, of demand supply sure. take their course. Right. They're not really too big on regulation. But I think they felt that the Canadian, uh, sorry, Americans were not saving the way they should. And for a variety of reasons, uh, something had to be done. Uh, as opposed to going to the Australian model, which has been successful, superannuation mm-hmm. model is where you are required to put up, now it's going up to 12% of pay uh, into a DC type plan. They didn't want to go that far, but they said we're going to require a default option. And uh, actually, that interesting. So uh, that really helped. So it wasn't really uh, overt regulation, but it was more of you could require this, right? Um, the fiduciary standards in, in the U.S., as you're, suggest, you're saying, is a little different nuanced or of not course. nuanced than Canada. And um, again, probably a, um, uh, a signal by the U.S. regulators to say, yeah, we want to continue to see if we can improve the speed of retirement savings by Americans, right? So in Canada, I think the regulators and uh, the regulators uh, in each country talk to one another and get best practices, right? So uh, I can't speak for where this will go. I would, you would like to think that we're heading that way naturally, and that's always the best way. You know, um, 
you know, we had this discussion several years ago when I came back to Canada on, you know, embedded commissions, should we allow right. them or not? And that was a great debate. I thought, you know, we, we um, they made decisions in the UK, which is, uh, you know, eliminating them. In the mm-hmm. US, you know, they allow them. But the US, the natural forces and supply right. and demand were such that everyone's going towards more unbundled anyways. But in Canada, we're a thoughtful discussion, and at least at this point, we're not um, limiting embedded commissions because access to advice is important. Right. And again, we really firmly believe that Canadians need advice. Uh, I need advice, <laughs> and it helps. Um, so, but full disclosure and transparency, and you know, you should know you should know what you're buying from fees and uh, you know the nature of it. So would they go all the way to fiduciary standards? Uh, I don't have any great insights. Sure. Uh, I, I would say I, my my guess would be no. It would be more of just continued uh, the evolution of the industry towards uh, you know uh, advisors um, in Canada are getting more sophisticated, more learned, right. more trained, and and, um, and 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 where where appropriate, if appropriate, they're getting more help from from their dealers to, to right. deal with these complex issues. So makes sense. Yeah. So market forces uh, yes. will continue to to help the rise of fiduciary and regulation, who knows? Yeah, yeah <laughs> fair yeah, enough. Yeah. Great. The, you've uh, articulated six catalysts for growth mm-hmm. um, going forward. Uh, we're not going to have time to hit all six of them, but I do want to choose three uh, to really dig into a little bit. Uh, and I'd like to start with China. Sure. I know China is a, a big <laughs> theme that you've spoken at, yes. about uh, a fair amount. <laughs> yes. Uh, we've had a significant investment in China AMC between IGM and Power. Correct. Uh, you sit on the board of uh, China AMC. I'd say the optimistic case for China with the rising middle class, uh, the increased need for wealth management, is been somewhat understood um, mm-hmm. in the West, probably not as much as, as uh, you'd expect it to be. Yeah. What else are, are we missing from uh, the Chinese market that makes you so optimistic on it? And also, what are the big risks that you see mm-hmm. with the development of wealth management in China? Sure. And I, I'll, I can wear two hats. I'll, I won't go on because I can go on forever if on China, sure. you know, and I, I've been traveling there for about 10 years now and overseeing businesses. And I, I'm just, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, if you want to invest in a high growth geography, there, there's your high growth geography sure. for our industry. You know, we can't speak to all the, but we're talking about retirement, wealth, asset management, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so just quickly, and I'll, I'll, I'll speak more from an investor's perspective, okay. uh, but just from the business perspective, because as you pointed out, we do have a large, actually ours and powers collective investment in China asset management corp is the single largest foreign investment in a Chinese asset management company. So it's important to us. Uh, and from a business perspective, we firmly believe that industry, you know, the, it's, you know, largest population in the world, to your sure. point, rising middle class. The middle class, depending on how you measure it, is approaching the size of the entire U.S. population. Um, it's, it, 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 I think it might be the fastest aging population uh, in the world, if not one of the fastest aging. Right. Um, and the one-child one child policy for many decades, you know, uh, sped it up. Um, and uh, the government is committed to a three- P, uh, pillared retirement system. It's mm-hmm. all set up now. The national security system, which we have CPP, uh, the corporate pension plans that's set up like we have here. And they just launched this year pilot project, uh, uh, sort of their RSP equivalent individual retirement savings plan. So they have a three pillar system. Uh, they're high savers. Uh, so you just do the math. You know, if, you, if, if, you're, if you're into mathematical equations and you say these six or seven factors, oh my goodness. Right. Like we, you know, is it all, you know, is, is it all, Increasing dramatically, yes. Straight line, we don't know, but it all increased dramatically. And of course, the experts would, would say that when you look at just at least the next decade, if not more, the 50% of all flows of our entire asset management industry globally will emanate from China. That's an astounding number because our industry uh, globally is $100 trillion U.S., all right? right. Uh, and half the growth will come from China <laughs> over the next decade. So, so from business-wise, we're very pleased with it, and we think that... Um, uh, that's important. Uh, just wearing our business hat. Now, equally important is what how we think we can benefit our Canadian investor, right? And that means sure. you know we believe you should invest in Chinese stocks and bonds. Just take the Chinese stock market. Uh, again, we may know these stats, but it's actually quite amazing when you when you recount it because it's it's relatively new capital markets, right? Mm-hmm. It's the second largest stock market in the world by far, way above Japan. And obviously, a long ways to go up to the U.S., but the sure. uh, second largest economy we know by far, and actually will be the largest economy in 2030 if mm-hmm. things continue. Um, and um, you know, it's um, 
it has uh, the, the, what we always talk about with China is the equity market. Uh, everyone knows China very well, but their equity market and the sectors are quite distinct and different than a Canadian investor. Uh, they're world leaders in e-commerce mm-hmm. and um, um, and obviously uh, technology and solar and uh, electric cars and all these things that uh, that we don't we have other things in Canada. We don't have those sectors, right? So we talk about it. everyone says, oh, you know, it's volatile. Well, yes, it is. Uh, and uh, it's only you know it's only a twenty year old industry, really. Right. And um, but by the way, the last fifteen years, it has produced higher returns than both the U.S. and Canada equity markets. Even though there's been some ups and downs, the Chinese equity markets, sure. which you would expect. Um, but you know, to 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 buy it solely on high return expectations, which is one reason to do it, I think it's a safe bet because if the economy continues to go, maybe it won't sustain a six percent growth, sure. but maybe it's four or five. That's pretty high. They're 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 converting to a consumer-led economy, less infrastructure spend, more consumer, and they're getting there. They're in the forties percent in terms of the uh, the percentage of the economy led by consumers. Yeah, U.S. is seventy-ish, so they want to get there. So that's a more sustainable economic model. Um, so for high growth, yes, there's high growth potential there. Uh, not a straight line up. It could be zigging, zigging, zagging, but sure. high growth there. But the risk diversification benefit really intrigues us. And we've been we've been talking about this quite a bit, McKenzie, because the correlation, surprisingly, maybe it is not surprising, to of Chinese equities to developed and emerging countries is low. Because of this, the composition of the economy and the composition of the stock market is so different than other economies. Because it's a newer economy, right? Right. So... Um, you know, to put that uh, a slice of Chinese equities into your portfolio, yes, you know, we all would expect it to be good, solid return expectations, but it diversifies your portfolio, which just surprises people. And uh, that's so we lead with risk diversification. Uh, we think that's the best thing. And then the final thing that we say about China is um, it should be a separate allocation. Pull it out of your emerging market. It, it's you know I I started I started history you know in this industry a long time ago. I remember emerging markets were like oh my god they're volatile. We'll never sure. invest in them right and yeah. you know but and all or my global manager invests in them. They'll do it for me. Right. No no no. You gotta, just like China now. China uh, warrants finally its own allocation. Just like U.S. second largest in the world. Right. You gotta look U.S. You know you go Canada U.S. China and then the rest of the world. That's and that's a different mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, now the risks of China. Um, it's just opening up now. It used to be you can only in, in, uh, get access through complicated quotas. Uh, I won't get into the, to that, but actually I should just eliminate it. But now we've got you know the Hong Kong, Shanghai Connect, and right. you've got the in Hong Kong, Shenzhen Connect, which is more your small mid cap. You've got just recently your your Shanghai London Connect. Mm-hmm. So you can actually invest in onshore Chinese equities directly. Um, and there's mutual funds and ETFs in Canada that, uh, including ours, you know, yeah, I'm not trying to push product here, but but including ours, that you can now just recently as a Canadian investor. So that's why people say, well, geez, I feel like I missed a boat. No, actually you couldn't. You couldn't until right. recently. So now you can. The Connects help. They're included in indices now. That mm-hmm. took a long time. It's being phased in because they're so big. And it's a good time to look at it. And I think as we think is it'll it'll help improve your risk adjusted return. Another uh, one of the six uh, catalysts for growth that uh, you've identified is alternatives. Yes. Uh, yeah. So we were first to market uh, last May yeah. with a liquid alternative product in uh, Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, recently, Michael Schnittman, who formerly headed our product organization, is now solely dedicated to alternatives reporting into the operating yeah. committee. Um, tell me why you thought it was necessary to have dedicated support to alternatives, mm-hmm. and what can we expect from McKenzie in the alternative uh, marketplace going forward? Yeah, it's a great question because, uh, and it's not a unique structure, but but asset managers evolve or grow to a point where they need uh, specialist focus <clears throat> on a particular line of business or a particular market segment. And you know, for instance, on ETFs. Uh, before I arrived, it was, right. it was established, which I was very pleased that it had been established as everyone in the ETF team wakes up every day. All I think about is ETFs, right? Sure. There comes a point where you need that. And we were at the point for alts. We needed to have a team every day. All they think about is alts, right? Because uh, it's going to be a high growth area. Uh, again, I really mean this. First and foremost, it's good for the key investor. Right. Uh, this broadens the opportunity set and provides you with uh, 
great uncorrelated returns to traditional stocks and bonds, which obviously continue to play a role in a portfolio. So I do want to lead with that always, and we do mean that, and I mean that. Uh, but this is going to grow very, very fast. Uh, again, fortunate to have U.S. experience where liquid alts grew quite expeditiously um, after the financial crises of 08, in that we all kind of woke up and said, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute here. Um, boy, these endowment foundations and large institutional investors and ultra high net worth, they, weren't, they didn't seem to get uh, hurt as much right. as the, the 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 main street investor the reason for that is because they have they had direct alternative investments you know direct private credit private private equities infrastructure real estate sure. and uh, um, hedge fund type strategies so uh, in the U.S., this took off in terms of uh, – and, and, and the mutual fund rules in the U.S. allowed it, that you could put uh, kind of liquid alternative-type strategies in a mutual fund wrapper and sell. And, and, and again, slice put a slice in your portfolio and improve its risk-adjusted sure. uh, return. And so lo and behold, as you know, in, in Canada, the rules just changed January 1st, and we were very – uh, happy that we got uh, exempted relief by the regulators to do it nine months in advance of the rules. And so, uh, you know, we launched that. And um, I think everyone believes this could be quickly a $100 billion pool of assets in Canada uh, that um, because they're good for Canadians and and we saw the growth. It's about a trillion in U.S. So, you know, 10 to 1 ratio to you know, grow, growing. I argue, argue it should be more than 10 to 1 in Canada because we our markets aren't as diversified as right. the U.S., so maybe this would be a greater percentage. And, of course, a lot of us, um, when I've run global businesses uh, and go around the world, and, and everyone always asks me, you know, uh, I guess we're a bunch of investment geeks, right? But they always ask me, that Canadian pension model is so darn good. You sure. Know, CPP and a case and the yeah. teachers and BCI, you know, because they're just way ahead on alt. So, again, in Canada, we have this uh, a culture within the investment industry of, you know, we understand alts and we use them. Mm-hmm. And so that might uh, make its way even quicker into the individual investor in Canada now that it can access, access uh, liquid alt. So one to, I want to set up a, a team, and it'll grow, that is focused every day on existing and new products. These are uh, liquid alternative strategies, to your, your point, these kind of absolute return hedge fund strategies. And also, we're trying to change the, 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 the language a bit. There's also another category of uh, real alternative asset classes. Right. So that's probably the you know, when you talk about CPPIB, you know, where they're 50% alts, probably the biggest percentage that they have are direct alts. Again, infrastructure, yeah. real estate, credit, et cetera. So uh, we want to develop the liquid version of those. And again, liquid version of real assets, liquid versions of, of hedge fund absolute return strategies. Again, two wonderful you know, component parts, we believe, to improve a portfolio. So we're really excited by it. Excited for investors. Obviously, with our business hat, we're excited by its future growth. So. Great. Yeah. Thanks for those insights, Barry. Uh, we'll turn to the bite section of the podcast. Okay. Yes. Uh, traditionally, this is the section that we talk about the current market environment. Uh, it's December 3rd, 2019. But yeah. for you, since I have you here, Barry, I thought we'd uh, narrowed the focus a little bit and talk about McKenzie yeah. uh, and maybe the Canadian wealth business as a whole. Yeah. Uh, we're coming into year end in 2019. Uh Tell me uh, some highlights uh, on uh, McKenzie in 2019, some challenges that we faced, and, and uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, well, it's been, um, you know, we are, our, our success, first of all, is defined by the success of, of our clients. Mm-hmm. And, and as you know, on the retail side, we work with uh, over 30,000 advisors across the country and, <clears throat> and try to be their business partners, and, and they've shown great loyalty to us. We thank them for that. But ultimately, obviously, uh, through them, uh, over a million Canadians invest with McKinsey. So we take that responsibility very seriously. So success, first of all, is that we feel we've we've produ- we've we've produced some really strong returns. The markets have helped, of, yes, course. of course. But beyond the markets, we think we've not only have we have we generated some some nice returns above the markets, but more importantly, helped to to create again these really diversified, successful portfolios because we are solutions oriented in terms of understanding how to, the component parts work to improve a, an overall portfolio. So. I think it's been a successful year for McKinsey from that perspective. By the way, we we are trying to grow our institutional business because, um, uh, and we're doing that thoughtfully and targeted uh, here in Canada and the U.S. and Europe and China with our partnership with CAMC. And so we're we're picking up some new clients selectively. It's nice to see because, um, again, well, we over have uh, over 100 strategies um, uh, that we deploy at McKinsey, but we wanted to you know take eight to 10 that we thought would be of interest to institutional investors, and it varies by country. And so they're picking up some nice uh, new client wins there. So we're very proud of that because ultimately uh, an asset management company that's multi-channel and multi-country and and um, 
uh, of institutional quality, we certainly want to ensure that we can meet the needs of both retail investors, which is obviously by far our biggest business will always be, mm-hmm. uh, and the institutional. So that's good. Um, I would say, um, you know, these these growth catalysts that we identified, that's just trying to think of ideas that are already here or coming to Canada that we think will improve portfolios. And so I, they all moved along quite nicely. I mean, we spoke about China. We launched things last year because, again, you can launch the, the Connect. And and, um, yeah. and, uh, and then, of course, uh, uh, post-April 2018, when the uh, trade war started to mm-hmm. heat up between China and U.S., the markets, the Chinese markets collapsed over 30%. <laughs> now they're up anywhere, depending on the indices, up 30 to 45 percent, and so sure. we're, we're very pleased to see that, and we hope that's more sustainable. Uh, so we see nice flows in China, and obviously our ETFs continue to go billion, two billion, three billion, over four billion now. That's just growing, and size is not everything, but you know, scale is important for our clients, for our ETF business, and yeah. we're now the, you know, I think the sixth largest ETF provider in Canada, 40, and so that's uh, that's nice success there. More to come. Um, social responsible investing, we try to get ahead of that because uh, it took a little while to get here in Canada and U.S. for the, re- the individual investor. Sure. It's been here for decades on the institutional side, particularly in Europe. But uh, it's it's here, and, and investors in Canada care, and they want to have an option of uh, maybe just a portion of the portfolio to align their personal values and beliefs to how they manage money, be it environmental or gender diversity or uh, labor practices. And so we've we've launched uh, three SRI social, we call sustainable responsible impact investing. <laughs> um, and uh, it's nice to see that take hold. I think we're up to about 1,500 advisors that put some money into our, our SRI uh, options. So that's a good thing, because that's a reflection also we we think of of the inside out of McKenzie being right. uh, a good corporate citizen and 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 um, a, a culture that's community focused. So that's been uh, encouraging. So other services we provide to um, advisors, you know, regulatory, um, what's going on, on the regulatory front and technology. We just launched last year Precision, which is uh, for free a, a tool that advisors can use on their desktop to compare different portfolios with access to all the list of mutual funds and ETFs in Canada. Registered Disability Savings Plans Program, very proud of mm-hmm. that. Our charitable foundation, you know, there's more phil- uh, philanthropic activity going on, not just with baby boomers, but even right down to millennials. And so this turnkey operation for them to be able to set up their own Charitable Foundation, and right. we'll do all the all the operations for them. So, yeah, it's it's. Um, I would say we're we're uh, we had we had a, we had a good year, and, and ultimately measured by the success, obviously, of um, returns we provide our clients. But I like where we're at, and I like our roadmap, and and we get a little ways to go. We got a lot of improvement areas, but it's it's feeling good, and I think the team's engaged and. Um, you know, we, we survey our employees. We got very high engagement scores. I think they have the uh, sense of ownership and sure. of the of the business, which is good. And then, of course, we survey our clients. They seem to be happy too, which is good. So, happy people, happy clients, happy firm. So, there you go. <laughs> Great. Um, you spoke a little bit about the roadmap uh, going forward. What will be the focus in 2020 uh, of uh, McKenzie? Yeah, it's a good question because. Um, uh, I took over th- about three and a half years ago uh, from Jeff Carney, and Jeff came in uh, about six and a half years ago. And at that point, uh, like any firm, sometimes you need to be freshened up sure. a little bit. And and Jeff is uh, such a strong transformational leader and agent of change. And he did his thing. He uh, you know worked hard with his team to um, you know improve the brand and launch more relevant product and. Bring in great investment, more investment talents, and did some upgrades too, and same as distribution. And that's not easy to do that, but sometimes reach an inflection point. Said, yeah, you know, we we have to um, elevate our game. And uh, you probably asked Jeff; he probably felt his job wasn't finished. But of course, he was promoted up to our first ever CEO of IGM, which has really helped, by the way, in um, our shared services model, where we Mm -hmm. can optimize that so that uh, you know we McKenzie take advantage of scale from operations technology and other shared services. So I was recruited in um, from the U.S. to uh, to um, uh, run McKenzie, and I report to Jeff Carney. And so Jeff's not gone anywhere, which is good to have that continuity, right? Sure. You really, really have that, by the way. Uh, I've taken over CEO-ships and leadership from other businesses where either my predecessor has retired or not there. Uh, and Jeff, let me tell you, is there. And he's doing his amazing work. He always does. Um, so he's there, which is good for that continuity and advice and um 
But first thing he, typical Jeff, to say, yeah, if you don't like, it's your strategy. If you want to change it, change it, right? I said, no, the reason I'm here, one of the reasons, main reasons is I agree with the strategy. It's the right strategy. So we called the foundational strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these component parts are the right ones. Because if you want to be successful in this industry, um, it's becoming uh, you know more of a separation like other industries. That win, of, I hate to use the term winners and losers derogatorily, but those that do well, those that don't do as well. Sure. How's that? And you have to execute very well on your strategy. And, you, and, and everything has to work. You have to have, first and foremost, strong performance, mm-hmm. relevant product, a strong brand, a trusting brand, great distribution, efficient, effective operations, an inclusive uh, culture, and, and competitive pricing. You have to have it all. So those are our component relevant foundational parts that we're always ensuring that they're there. And then we take that, and we've adopted something when I came on board called Always on Strategy. It's nothing new. Boston Consulting Group and other consulting firms have developed this, where you're not making a, a plan every three or four years and sticking to it, not moving, because things change quite dynamically in sure. the environment. So it's always on strategy. And we're always shifting and changing, adapting, pivoting with that foundational strategy in place. Mm-hmm. So as in 2017, as in 2018, as in 2019, as in 2020, and beyond, the foundational, we'll keep working on the foundation, make sure it's solid, right? Happy clients, happy people, good performance, competitive pricing, great brand, all that, et cetera. But then we're pivoting. So for instance, you know, we notice social sponsor vesting, we think it's coming. So right. we launched that in advance. So uh, we launched ETF 1.0. When I came aboard, we launched 2.0. 2.0 is simply kind of calibrating it to our overall McKinsey strategy, where uh, 1.0 was, let's see how we would do with one channel, IROC, and with active fixed income and smart beta. And it did really well. Okay, we're comfortable. We know what we're doing with ETS. You know, it's, it's a different sort of animal, so we make sure we're comfortable sure. with it. Launch 2.0, multi-channel, even launch passive, because these are building blocks. We're an active mm-hmm. shop, but we have passive ETFs and smart pay and active because we believe you you put these component parts together. And then, you know, obviously we're we're now promoting it not just into IROC, but integrate it and MFTA where we can and robo-advisor and institutional. Right? Sure. Uh, China obviously fell in our lap. What a wonderful opportunity that our ultimate parent company, Power, gave us <laughs> because of their 40-year exquisite relationship with China. That was an amazing opportunity. That that came day two for me. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I was wow. day two, and I got the call, say, can you help me? I said, of course, i help you. That's fantastic, <laughs> right? I, I've known China. So I took a year to get the transaction. So that started that process, day two. Okay. By Kenzie, okay. So, <laughs> so think, and, you know, digital, like I, like our distribution team is is one of the best, I think, if not the best in Canada. And mm-hmm. again, they're, they're solutions-oriented business partners. But now we're in, we're doing technology and we're giving them, you know, tools that they can use. And now we're looking at uh, uh, digital wholesaling. What is that? Well, that's just using technology and data more to make us more efficient and effective sure. in terms of going to the marketplace and allowing the advisor to interact how they want to interact. Not every advisor wants to interact with us the same way. Some want more human touch. Some would prefer less. <laughs> some like more technology. Some So we're, we're that's probably uh, that's probably a five-year journey. And we started that okay. like 18 months ago. Right. But we have to. And we're one of the first in Canada to do it. Obviously, firms in the U.S. do it. We've studied it, mm-hmm. brought it to Canada. Another idea that we took from the U.S., which is nothing wrong with that, right? You know, <laughs> So you can see this kind of always-on-strategy approach. So the sixth growth catalyst will continue 2020 and beyond. And China, alternatives, you mentioned social response investing, um, quant, uh, to complement our fundamental. Um, we've got um, multi-asset, um, and I'm missing one of the six, but we'll get there. <laughs> but there ETFs. Are, ETFs, yeah, right, about, ETFs, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that will continue pushing everything along, looking at the environment, making sure that we look at where the cheese is moving that will move over there, but ultimately it's just executing on this fluid strategy that we have, not original, right? but we think it's pretty darn good and it's fluid and it's adaptive. And um, it's a certain comfort, I think, of the team, the entire cross, uh, permeates across McKenzie. We've got a strategy that we're permeating is working. And that's kind of cool. You're coming every day and locking arms and just just doing good work, right? And uh, go home and do it again and, and rinse and repeat. And it's working. And, uh, you know, so that's we'll just keep focus head down. Because, again, we will never uh, just wear my business hat. Obviously, first and foremost, we're an investor to help uh, uh, asset manager help investors. Yep. But we will never overestimate uh, our competitors because, uh, you know, it's a tough, tough industry and, and we want to succeed for our investors and, and succeed well as a business because that means we can continue to, uh, you know, expand in, in, in attracting more talent and more research and more investments in the business. So. 
Great. Yeah. Thanks for that, Barry. Um, we always conclude these podcasts by getting some recommendations for you. Okay. Uh, so uh, I'll run through a, a couple. Um, tell me some of your favorite books. Favorite books. Um, now, I must admit, I, uh, uh, my wife and I are big movie buffs. So okay. uh, first of all, I'm a news junkie, so I read a lot of newspapers, and like you probably do. I know you do too, Matt. But sure. I, so I, I don't read a lot of books. I read a lot of newspapers, periodicals, uh, go online, um, love movies. Uh, love movies, um, but I read some books. Not very often. I, I'm not a I'm not a I'm not a fiction person. Uh, okay. Like nonfiction, yeah. uh, anything Malcolm Gladwell, I'll read. Okay, I That's... just think it's uh, he just makes you think, and sure. and he's able to connect things that you would never think you would connect. Uh, uh, and I'm also uh, I don't know about you. I I'm notorious. I have four or five books by my bedside. Yeah. They're all between 10 and 30% red. Right. <laughs> uh, Sapiens, which is fascinating. I'm like yeah. a third way through that one. Oh my okay. goodness, the, the, the history of humankind. Like, wow, is that where we came from? <laughs> yeah. Explains a lot, by the way. You should read that one. Uh, I have. It's yeah. wonderful. Oh, have yeah. you? I'm sure. Yeah. You're, you're, you read a lot more than I do. Yeah. Uh, I'm leafing through a little bit because uh, we retain, a, uh, we have a U.S. home in Connecticut, and so mm-hmm. um, Bridgewater's up the street. So okay. Ray Dalio's Principles. Uh, wonderful book. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. my favorite book last year. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, just yeah, good. Yeah. Really yeah. insightful. Yeah, it's, uh, it's Again, it's just a unique perspective on, yeah. on how to run businesses. So not a lot of books going on, but uh, biographies and nonfiction are my point. I wish I'd like to read more. Sure. But it's, uh, you know. You run a company. Tough to find out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, well, let's let's uh, go to your favorite movies then. Oh, goodness. Oh, there's too many. Like, I, I'm very blessed because, uh, you know, we live downtown Toronto and mm-hmm. we live, like, really close to TIFF. Uh, so not just the festival, that is, but even the TIFF um, the, the theater, the obviously. Theater, they sure. operate movies every day of the year. And so uh, my wife, Rose, and I just love movies when we can find them. So, but we did, we're fortunate that we were full participants in TIFF and supporters mm-hmm. and sponsors of TIFF. So uh, I, um, boy, I would say, um, I would say the best actor will be, um, will be Joaquin Phoenix from Joker. So okay. have to, it's, a, it's a different, different movie to watch, but his acting is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, oh, I'm good. I'm forgetting her name now. Um, she played Judy Garland. Isn't that awful? Um, Renee Zellwinger. Yeah, Renee Zellwinger is exquisite in um, in um, in Judy. I think she'll win Best Actress. There's a movie on the movie side. There's a movie that we saw uh, at TIFF called Mercy. Okay. And it had uh, Jamie Foxx and Michael B. Jordan in it. And uh, true story. I also, you know, I think we all like true stories. And, sure. Uh, and it's a difficult story, but it was a difficult. It was a story of a. I think he, he was. It was uh, an African American uh, young man who graduated, from, I think, from Harvard Law School. Okay. And he decided to go down to Alabama. I don't know if he had roots in Alabama, but he just decided that he. Um, saw he felt injustices of uh, mostly men on death row in Alabama, mostly yeah. mostly African American, and so he started to defend them. And uh, you know, unfortunately, some of the atrocities of the legal system were such that it was pretty sad. But just you know, you see these movies, and it's a true mm-hmm. story, and you see how he helps uh, some of these um, uh, wrongly convicted death row mm-hmm. prisoners be uh, released. It is a powerful film. I I think we also like because we are fortunate enough. Sometimes at TIFF, you can uh, you have a a session with the actors for an hour. Yes. And so we we went to the one where uh, Jimmy Fox, who my goodness, he's a funny man. By the way, you forget he's a comedian. Right? Yeah. <laughs> he's an impersonator, a comedian, a musician, a writer, and he's a wonderful actor. Yes. And Michael B. Jordan is a, a really good young actor. He was uh, he played you know. Um, the last two Rocky Balboa movies. I don't know if they're called Rocky Balboa. He's in those movies. Who's right. uh, anyway, so uh, I, there's more I can talk about, but but that one was, sure. was particularly touching. So Very good. Yeah. Um, how about, uh, do you listen to podcasts? Some of your favorite podcasts. Yeah, po- I, 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 you know, um, my wife and I, we mostly, when we go to the U.S., fly back and forth. But sometimes we like driving. People always ask, well, okay. why do you drive? I don't know, we just like getting in the car sometimes. You sure. Know? And uh, you can leave when you want. You can stop when you want. <laughs> There's no security, or very little across the, you know, at least the border. Sure. So uh, we listen to podcasts. There's only time I listen to them is when we're driving. Okay. And uh, I defer to her. The TED Talks are great. Oh, sure. There's so many of them. Yeah. I know I'm being naive here. I know that it's been around a little while, but my goodness. Uh, so we would just kind of you know, pick a topic, uh, leadership or sure. something. But I love the TED Talks. Uh, you know, some of the great leaders. Uh, I, I always, like all of us, we all aspire to be 
better better than we are. And uh, you know, I, I've been leading companies a long time, and I still have a lot of improvement areas. So you see some of these TED talks or non TED talks or documentaries yeah. on the you know, leaders of you know Apple or Microsoft and some of the tech companies. It's fascinating to to watch them, particularly uh, their communication. I still believe it's something that. I was taught early days with some great mentors, still working on it, mm. that uh, leadership, obviously, strategic thinking, experience, and obviously a great team, first and foremost, hire right. well. But it's communication. Right. It really is. Uh, you know, your employees want to hear from you, and mm-hmm. they want to hear the story over and over. They want to be part of it, and they want to know the good news and the bad news. Sure. Right? And um, intergenerational also, I think, you know, we're having some companies you have three, four, five generations now working right. at a company. So you have to understand that. And not one family. I mean, just, no, I understand. just the yeah. Yeah, demographic cohort, so to speak. So, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm rambling here, but I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. I love when I can, but mm-hmm. I like documentaries as well and TED Talks and other things. And, and it, by the way, I did listen to Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. Revisionist yeah. History? Yes. Yeah. Just discovered that last summer and went through all those yeah. with some long drives. Sure. Yeah, so good. I really enjoyed that. So good. Thanks for asking. Um, it's uh, coming to the end of the year. Uh, yeah. A lot of people make charitable contributions mm-hmm. uh, this year, or at the end of the year. Um, tell me some of the charities that you support. And- yeah. So, um, you know, we, we've made a, a point. Uh, so, worked in New York, lived in Connecticut, uh, worked and lived in Chicago, um, you know, back in Toronto. And so, you know, it's, uh, it's important, everybody, right? But but Rose and I is important that we we support charitable um, giving because uh, we're so blessed. Right? I mean, we're, we're we're just so blessed. So, you know, I uh, came back and uh, joined the St. Michael's Hospital Foundation Board, which is uh, the Urban Age Hospital. Mm-hmm. I mean, the work they do. No, they do unbelievable leading research and AI attached to heart and brain, and uh, they're building out the world's uh, hopefully one of the world's largest and preeminent multiple sclerosis um, <clears throat> centers. Oh well. By the way, you, uh, things you learn, MS uh, Canada has the highest per capita incidence of MS in the world. And I'm not sure why. There's some theories. Maybe it's the northern climates ten, tend to have okay. more MS. Maybe it's vitamin Maybe it's the vitamin E or D. For the, for the, in any event, so St. Mike's Hospital is uh, something that uh, we're very, very focused on. Um, uh, we have our own personal family foundation. Uh, Rose and I are particularly focused on uh, disadvantaged youth and, mm-hmm. and those that just need help, mentorship, mentorship. Uh, uh, that's a foundation that we run out of Stanford, Connecticut. Uh, we adopted a, a young man years ago that unfortunately passed away, but he he was in that situation that we we got him through that. He's just a wonderful son and brother to our our uh, three um, daughters. Right. Uh, so that's something we're really focused on to help out uh, the underprivileged and uh, through mentorship, which mentorship has proven actually to help, particularly that ages 11, 12, 13, get them through the teenage right. years. Um, and finally, uh, you know, not to be, uh, I don't mean, this is not a commercial, <laughs> but I really do mean this, and I've mentioned this at annual general uh, meetings that I've spoken at or anything. Everyone asked me, what's the one thing that, defines the McKenzie and McKenzie culture. It's our McKenzie Charitable Foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I'm so proud to be part of that. It's, it's celebrated its 20th year this year. Uh, it's, in, it's run entirely by our employees. Uh, everyone gives to it. Um, <clears throat> and a lot of work to run a, a charitable foundation yourself that the employees do. And, uh, and then we support um, you know two, three dozen charities across the country, obviously being a national firm, and we've identified, and I, I can't take credit for this because the, 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 the foundation committee and board, the employees do this all themselves, and I try, sure. love to know what's going on and tell me and I, how can I help and do the best I can. But identify charities that are, are um, kind of grassroots. They, they, you know, sometimes we, have this, we have amazing large terrible engines uh, around the world that are, do great work. But sometimes the smaller ones, the grassroots ones, kind of slip through the cracks a little sure. bit. And so we identify those with a particular focus, again, on which, not because of me, is disadvantaged youth and, and uh, underprivileged families. Um, so that's just wonderful. I, I couldn't be more proud. We, we, um, we had a big kickoff last week. Uh, and it was really interesting. I, uh, we, we do a little more, we do social media, like everybody does. And sure. I do a little LinkedIn. I'm not a social media guru by any stretch of the imagination, but I do a lot more LinkedIn the last couple of years. And it's amazing when, when I push things out and I push things out, what gets the most traction? That gets the most traction. Is that right? It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like we, we had an employee uh, kickoff last week or two weeks ago, rather, on Cheryl Foundation this right. year. It's giving season. And, uh, you know, one of our charities come in and, and um, this group does, um, um, they do, they teach breakdancing, hip hop. 
for young youth to give them something to do because a lot of them have musical music in them and sure. and they uh but maybe they need to focus on that and to watch maybe some troubles they're having and and say mental illness and so it's <laughs> music is helping them and so they came to perform and and uh I just love when we push things out and we say oh there it is there we go again everyone just you know everyone just loves seeing giving brought to life and um so yeah a lot of uh you know, um, been very blessed and charitable don't, uh, giving becomes even more important as you, right. as you progressed, uh, in your years. So, well, thanks very much, Barry, for, uh, spending so much time My pleasure. with, with yeah. us and, yeah. uh, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you very much. And you can invite me back if you want at some point, but we'll stay away from politics, right? So. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, man. Thanks, Barry. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 